It was almost like, did you tell me no? Watch me now. That was when BEMF scaled. Like, I was just like, you're going to take this thing away from me? Fuck you. I'm going to go make this thing over here and I'm going to make it the biggest, most epic, most like pour every piece of my creativity and community and resources into it. And we scaled that festival really fast. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And today we're exploring the story of Katie Longmire, a young cello player who went from nightclub doorkeeper to producing a Made in America festival with a crowd of over 80,000 people. Katie's story is a whirlwind, taking us through her ascent in the D.C. nightlife scene to landing a gig at Warner Media to producing events as massive as the Brooklyn Electronics Music Festival. But as much as it's a story about her, it's also a story about her community, the people who supported her, and the people who she sought to uplift. Today's episode is jam-packed, but before we step into the big leagues, we're going to wind back to humbler beginnings, to Katie's traditional southern home just outside of Washington, D.C. You know, I was a totally nerdy kid. I played classical music, so I was always like practicing or performing. Uh, my parents were really into the arts and like traditional backgrounds, so I was like learning French and playing the piano and wearing dresses. And so I think I was literally like born defiant. And I think around middle school, I just sort of took off and I've always been friends with all the guys. And I would like practice that song a bunch of times. And my mom was like, if you play it five times, you can go ride your bike. And then I'd bail and go like get scuffed up riding bikes with the boys and <laughs> doing things like that. And then I'd come home and have to like get dressed up in a dress and like play a piano concert or something. With like music, like what was your opinion of it? Because I played piano for like 15 years. And so I remember when I was little, <laughs> it was a endeavor to, to initially force the, I guess, diligence of like practice. But, you know, maybe eventually you take a liking to it. So like, what was your relationship with like, music when you were younger and, and how did you view it? Was it something that you had to do or is it something that you wanted to do? I think it was just a natural expression. Like I am a creative first. That's maybe not the thing that... Um gets expressed outwardly to the world now. But um, I played for the cello from third grade on. It's like writing in your diary. It's like a place where you can completely and fully express without words. It was like, there's a part of me that like needs to get it right. And there's a technical and mathematical aspect to music that a lot of people talk about that's really powerful and very much stayed with me throughout my whole life. Rather than keeping a journal at the bottom of a drawer tucked between folded shirts, Katie found expression through music. It was a liberating means for expression, a wordless harmony that she alone controlled. To me, Katie's childhood comes across as a balance between freedom and boundaries. Her parents had implemented structure and expectations, but Katie's strong will couldn't be bound. Sure, she'd been at the piano recital and be there on time, but she'd arrive with a fresh scuff on her knee and maybe a bit of dust still in her brow. Both of these worlds defined her, the trained technical musician and the defiant kid out on the field running around totally free. Now, as she got older, she was going to merge these two worlds into one. It seems like it was pretty structured, right? Like you had to, you had to perform and, and you had to practice and you had to be diligent. And so I want to like, I guess, go to how you got introduced to maybe this other side of music, uh, maybe a little bit more rebellious than, uh, the cello to like the nightclub scene. 
I joke around, I, I discovered men and or boys and weed around that time. And a boy that I liked a lot, who was a lifelong friend, had been going out to nightclubs in New York and he or in D.C. and he took me. What was the nightclub? Nation in D.C., which is the party was called Buzz. There's a party called Fever. and There's a party called Buzz. Yeah. Could you actually like describe the whole scene of like that first club that you went into and like... Um- Everything was just black. Like the building was painted black. Like everything was black. You could still smoke inside. I was always like wiggling my way by. I don't even remember how I got into the club. I did not have a fake ID. And it was just, I think the the biggest realization for me is that it was such an expression of other, other kinds of people. So it was how they spoke or how they moved their bodies. And And I love that. And I wanted to be there all the time. And I, you know, made instant friends in the club. Like I had my club friends that I was always excited to hang out with. And and I didn't want to wait in the line to do it. So I went to the the promoters of Buzz and I um, asked to be the intern. I think I was the intern for like two weeks and I was helping put together the guest list. And at the time the list was very coveted and getting on it was pretty difficult. And um, I was the only person who knew sort of like the navigation of that thing. And I was like, you know, 16 and a half, 17 years old, standing in front of the hottest club in DC. And um, I ended up absorbing that job. And so what was it like being at the door? Because I I imagine that you're coming into contact with all sorts of people and it probably is a little different than maybe the people that you would have encountered at these cello concerts when you're wearing (laughs) the dresses. And so like how quickly did you, I guess, get over maybe the shock of all these different kinds of people? Because I imagine like placing yourself from one world to this, this completely new world where there was so much more freedom of expression must have been a little bit shocking or was it, was it? shocking to you I think I craved it I just like I couldn't get enough of it I wanted to eat drink and sleep that life that creativity that expression like I wanted to be there all the time I don't even think at the time I understood the keys that I had been given it's a sacred space and that as the doorkeeper you are the gatekeeper of that sacred space and so It's important that everyone coming to the door feels welcome and included and important and valued. And even if they aren't on the list, you don't treat them badly. Is there a story that showcases the the, the power that you wielded and how, how you wielded that power? I've made really arrogant, powerful people sit outside and watch me let in like 50 people who were, by their definition, not significant, (laughs) just to show them who was valued in that space. Like, hey, you think you're important, but what's important in this space is more than just your title or your ego or your fame. I feel like you're learning the laws of human nature, just like... Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, you can't mask why you're there. You know, whether you went there to release, express, fall in love, get hammered, like... Just forget about your day, create a day. Um, You know, your real self is the only part that kind of like shows up. Katie was almost acting like an energy conductor, a channel for all different kinds of people with different means of expression to enter into one welcoming space. Now, even though I'm sure Katie was crossing paths with plenty of famous people, it's obvious that Katie really didn't care who you were or where you came from. This was a sacred space. And regardless of your title in society, her duty was to protect it. She loved this world, but to be fully present for it, there was another part of her life she'd have to complete. 
I think school was just like never my big thing. Honestly, it was like an agreement I had with my parents. Like, this is the thing you have to check off the list. Like, I knew I was never going to get past an undergraduate degree. I was just existing. It was like a means to an end. It was almost like school was my job and everything else was my life. And my life was my full priority. And I just had to go do this thing and check it off. You know, the trajectory for me at that time was that I was going to leave school and be a classical cellist in a symphony orchestra with the goal of making it to first chair. And I was going to travel around the world and that was going to be my life. And, you know, if I was good enough, maybe I'd become a soloist. And um, I very quickly realized I did not want to be in front. I liked being behind. And that's what I learned in nightclubs. Why is that? There's uh, the person who's performing and then there's the person who creates the opportunity for them. I think so. I don't know where the quote comes from, but like I, I agree with it, which is that leaders lead from behind. It doesn't make me less of a leader or less powerful or less visible to the people who I value if I'm building for them and with them. The quote, by the way, the one about leading from behind, that was Nelson Mandela. In full, the quote says, it's better to lead from behind and put others in front, especially when you celebrate victory and nice things occur. This shared victory is exactly what Katie celebrates and encapsulates the idea that success is found in numbers rather than in isolation. And like an orchestra, the nightlife in DC couldn't exist in isolation. Its very lifeline was community and Katie yearned to be a part of it, to foster an environment that pulled more and more people in. So with this in mind, she found herself determined to push forward into new territory, territory that would come with all sorts of new relationships. So as you go through college, how do you integrate yourself more within the music industry and land that internship with Warner Records? Relentlessly. (laughs) I like deep dove on every single record label tried to get the personal contacts and emails of every single human in every single one that I wanted to work at. I made, wrote up what I thought was what a proposal looked like, which in retrospect is like laughable, but at least it showed like what I was trying to do. And I went for it and I emailed them and I called them and I applied for every single internship. And, um, and that's how I got that job. Music industry was really different then. I think that people were still, you know, it's like still big labels ran the whole world and signed the big artists and did the big tours. So to me, I was taking the very first step in a trajectory to be part of that universe. And it was a luxury to be there. Um, And I would I would escort artists places. So one of my favorite ones is I took Michael Stipe of R.E.M. and he was a guest on Anderson Cooper's CNN show and they definitely had a crush on each other. So they like met each other in the green room and I was there and I was like, oh my God, I'm watching this happen in real time. I mean, was it all like amazing and fun or or were there moments where it was like hard? There's no illusion if there are young people out there who are like, oh, I want to be in the music industry. Yeah, it's going to fucking suck. You're going to do shit that sucks. Like, you know, like there's there's hard work that you're going to have to do. And there's things that are going to be really frustrating. There are probably going to be older people who make decisions you don't like. Like all that happened. But I think all of that happened while I was literally walking down the hallway, bumping in casually into like legends. 
I didn't even fully get it. Like I got it, but I didn't fully get it. I could like casually walk into the office of, you know, some of the most powerful music executives ever and like ask them questions. And what I didn't understand is that they understood that because of the life I was living outside of the office, I had value. And so they listened to me and they checked in with me. And and I had this like group of people around me who were propping me up in a way I didn't even fully grasp at the time. And I'm just glad that I, I got to do that. Katie may not have fully grasped it at the time, but the people around her were doing then what she's doing now. They were acting as a bridge for opportunity, a support system in an industry that was so difficult to break into. Warner Records, by the way, is home to some of the most legendary performers, including Eric Clapton, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Cher, and Gary Clark Jr. They were, and still are, a big deal, and she'd been let in. The gatekeepers of Warner Records could sense Katie's relentless energy, her passion, and they opened up the doors. But that was just her day job. In the club scene, she was brewing up something totally different. Can you tell me how you started your company? Yeah, I I started Good People's by accident. So um, I was an assistant by day, you know, answering phones, taking notes, all that good stuff. Every night I went out to the club. I had an incredible community um, of people around me. I had a friend who eventually became my boyfriend for a really long time um, who ran a magazine and wanted to do magazine parties. And I was like, oh, I throw parties and we're all in the club. Let's all throw a party together just for fun. So I literally called all my friends and one of my friends was managing a really big venue, Tribeca Cinemas. Another one of my friends was managing a bunch of artists. So all of a sudden we had a bunch of really famous people DJing. Prince Paul DJed the first one. Someone else made a flyer and we were about to put the flyer out. And someone was like, hey, you're technically presenting this party. You have to name yourself. A friend of mine who made the logo said, I just made this for you just for this one you should just put it on there and call call yourself this. And it was called Good Peoples. And it was because literally the one thing you would hear across everybody else when they would like meet me in the club, be like, yo, yo, you have to meet Katie. She's always surrounded by good peoples. You should come sit at this table. And then what we did not expect is that we sold out and there was a line down the block. A thousand people came to that party. Wait, we how many? fit them in the club. A thousand. A thousand, thousand people. people for your yeah. first party. For my first what? party. Was there a moment where like you stepped back from the crowd and just surveyed everyone was there like there and like what did you see and what were you feeling? Honestly, at that party I think I was just running around like crazy. I was like there were there were two movie theaters running, a basement and a main floor. And so we had an entire situation going on. Wiz Khalifa played that party. You know, I was like literally catering to all of these like stakeholders at the time. I really like I didn't even understand what was happening. I think the moment that was really significant for me is there was another club promoter in New York who kind of did similar things. Her name is Roxy Cottontail. She's one of my best friends. And she and I had not met yet. And it was our first time meeting. She walked to the front of the line. I knew exactly who she was. I like let her in the door and she goes, I'm sorry, I need to know who you are. (laughs) Like, where did you come from overnight? Um, for someone at that point who was running like the hottest party in New York to like show up at my party and be like, you're significant. What's going on over here? I was like, I made it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And for the first like couple years of Good Peoples, I did my own door, which is like kind of unheard of as a promoter. But 
for me, it was fun. I love doing the door. And as we mentioned, you know, the container of the vibe of the party is so essential. I don't think I would have ever trusted it with anyone else. But I also introduced myself to everybody that way. I was like meeting all these creative people and fueling a community that I needed for myself to exist in the world. I, you know, people who can cre- can't create and let, like they die if they don't create, like they have to make things. And I wanted to be around those people and I wanted to build things and make things with those people. And the only thing I had to make was a party. So I would like, you know, can I throw your record release party? Can I drop, do your clothing drop? Can I, you know, create a partnership with you and someone else and sit next to you while you make cool shit? Because like, this is all I know how to make. Katie makes this alternative universe in her parties. She meticulously handcrafts every element. She plays God in this world of fun, but she still puts herself at the door. Even though she's at the top, she wants to be exactly where she started. And the reason that she wants to be here is because the experience of any event starts at the door. I imagine Katie standing there, greeting her guests, guiding them into her universe. It's almost like she's the medium, this connection and guide between the outside world and what lies beyond. I think this is what makes this initial party stand out. She'd carved her own style into the current New York City nightlife scene. For Katie and other event planners, the New York City nightlife was a chance for escape. She's not overwhelmed with logistics or the outcome. It's all an homage to, well, good people. And Katie was a master at ordering chaos so everyone could have a good time. Every party's controlled chaos, right? Like, it's more like something's going to go wrong, something's going to be crazy. And I think, you know, I always say about a good producer in general is just like, they're just sort of prepared for every possible scenario. You're a scenario planner. And the only way you become a good producer is if you've been in every scenario and then you were forced to make a decision. Something's going to go wrong, something's going to be crazy. And I've definitely like gotten in like verbal altercations with men five times my size because I think their DJ set sucked. And I I was like personally offended that they were killing the vibe. But you know, that's the beauty of nightlife kind of. It's just like, you know, people like to act like it's risky and dangerous, but it's actually like open and lovely and it's just raw and you have to be down and you have to be down to go with the flow and you have to be down to, you know, change. I think the worst thing I've ever had to do by my definition is cancel a party because of a inaccurate accusation um, against a DJ for sexual harassment, and we had to cancel. Um, I think the thing that was hard is that I had a personal relationship with the DJ, and I, I believed them to be true. It, for the record, it is since that person has been exonerated um, with proper evidence. Um, so, you know, I am a woman and believe in, you know, believing and listening to women in this particular case, something felt really wrong. Um, but as a promoter, I belong to both the DJ community and the audience. So I, I'm in the very tenuous position where everybody's safety is important. And that's ultimately the call I made, which was that it was not safe to hold a party with a person, um, that had any kind of accusation period. I wanted a container for people where they would go and feel that I had values, that they were going to a place that held values. And what I did not do that many other promoters did to that DJ on that specific tour is shame that DJ. So what I did do is write, I, we, we put out a statement that basically said, um, you know, we believe in safety for all. And that includes people's reputations. And that includes um, the safety inside the club and outside of the club. 
What, what was the effect of that decision on your community and like the community at large? Do you think it set an example for um, for like other people within this community? Do you think it set an example for yourself going forward? I don't know if I set a precedent for anybody. If anything, I diverged from every other promoter's behavior and was criticized for it. You were criticized for it, like in what way? Um, I think a lot of people felt like I should have taken a stronger stand against the accused, and I didn't want to do that. In that particular situation, I felt quite confident um, in the position I was taking, and I was correct as was, you know, it was a wrongly accused person. And I, and also it's just like, no, there were no details. There was an accusation. That's all it was. And, you know, I'm, I believe in education and involving not cancel culture. So this is long before anybody was calling it cancel culture. You know, like it was, you know, whatever. But, um, if anything, uh, I took a little ding from the community by taking the position I did and I was okay doing that. At this point, Katie is making a name for herself in the nightlife community, and her choices are building her a reputation in the business. But I want to focus on something Katie said that perfectly encapsulates this party world, how it's all controlled chaos. Nightlife, parties, and clubs are something that to the naked eye looks completely out of control. But behind the scenes, there's a huge team that has calculated every aspect of these nights. Masterminds like Katie curate spontaneity. And sometimes to create an environment of safety, you might have to cancel an event. Sexual misconduct allegations had to be taken seriously, and Katie did that. But she had battling loyalties and was caught in the middle. This situation would be a hiccup, but it wouldn't stop Katie from creating her space, which would lead to some of the biggest events yet. Bouncing back from that, I want to go to uh, The Yard. Brooklyn Yard was so special. I, I co-founded it with um, Jen Lyon of Mean Red. And so what happened was a developer had a plot of land. We wanted to own a nightclub and we didn't really have the capital to do it. So we were trying to find another way. We went to the developer and said, could we throw parties here on Friday nights, Saturday afternoons to evenings and Sunday afternoons to evenings and do a rev split with you? And he said, yes. So Jen and I built a yard. We had friends who um, were woodworkers and they built a stage for us and a bar for us. And we had friends who owned bars in the neighborhood and we would pull temporary liquor permits so that like, against those bars, they would be our partners. So we could serve wine and beer and sangria that maybe was more than wine. We programmed it for the community. We let people bring their kids. We let people bring their dogs. We had one of the most famous local food trucks. We had them come inside and we built them a structure and like run the food outside of the space. And we like opened the doors to an open space that was designed to be shared. It was designed for people to gather. It was a very big celebration of everybody in Brooklyn who was self-owned and independent and doing things. And we just would reach out to people and be like, we think you're rad. Do you want to do something here? We have space. And so many people were down to do that. You know, Mr. Sunday, the record label, was born out of the yard. The Brooklyn Electronic Music Festival was born out of the yard. Like incredible, iconic things that now live in culture, you know, happened there. Brooklyn has always been a breeding ground for creativity. The experimental arts and movements that come out of the area define Brooklyn culture. It was the epicenter of the 90s East Coast hip-hop movement. Biggie Smalls, Jay-Z, Busta Rhymes, they all revolutionized the genre by telling Brooklyn stories. With this cultural lens on the borough, 
It's clear art is at the heart of Brooklyn. And that's where Katie comes in. She works like a broker, linking artists to community. Her events connect the rich art and culture to Brooklyn's population and makes it accessible to everyone. But it's time for her to take it to the next level, a space that goes beyond showcasing art to the community. She wants to merge art and community into a single event through a festival. Yeah, so my same partner in the yard, um, Jen Lyon, and I also co-founded Brooklyn Electronic Music Festival. It actually started, there was a group called Famous Friends. They were a promotional group and they were doing parties at the yard. And they came to us and they said, we want to do a festival. We're just going to call it a festival. But what would happen if we book the entire weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday with all Brooklyn DJs? And it wasn't like, let's call a bunch of famous people. It was literally like, let's just call all of our friends who are DJs who play regularly and book them all end to end on one weekend and call it a thing. So we were like, awesome, let's do it. Originally, we were their partners. We were their venue partners. And it was awesome. It was packed. It was so much fun. Organic, like cool, creative projects and visuals and things like people kept on just piling on, being like, hey, I can do like put a sheet up in the trees and do visual design. And hey, I'm going to do a daytime thing. And, you know, it just it the programming evolved within itself. And it was really, really great. I mean, the Brooklyn Electronics Music Festival grew really quickly. Can you talk to me a little bit about that growth? So like, what did it start out as its first year? And then as it continued, like, how how did you see it evolve? Yeah, I mean, so that first year, it was that partnership in the back, in our backyard, in the yard. The next year we moved to the Can Factory, which was on Third Ave in Brooklyn. So I think it was like two avenues up and it just was like a larger courtyard. And they had an indoor space where you could throw a big rave and an outdoor courtyard. And so it was like this hub of creativity. And that was really amazing. And that was the first year we, I think we hired one big DJ just to see what would happen. And it sold out. And also during during this time, like, I mean, or at least for a year into this project, like you were still working at Warner Media, right? No, I actually, when I opened the yard, that's when I left. So basically, I'm not going to pretend like I had crazy insight at the time, but I knew that there were things changing. There were people moving in and out of the building. There was kind of like an old guard, new guard vibe, and I didn't really feel the vibe. And um, Jen called and said, I'm doing this project. And I will never forget, I was standing in my office looking out the window and saying, I think I'm going to quit my job today. (laughs) And I went in to talk to my boss about it. And to her credit, she said, yeah, I think you should go do that. And then I'm going to hire you as a freelancer to be like our partner. And she stayed, I stayed, stayed working with her and Warner Brothers through that opportunity um, anyway, with their blessing and grew into this new entity. Even Warner Brothers agreed. Katie was on the cusp of a big opportunity. The Brooklyn Electronics Music Festival cultivated the music community. It's an opportunity for connection and collaboration, all focused on the local level. The focus on local artists shows how much she cares about Brooklyn's culture and community. It's an event that's now bigger than Katie ever expected. You grew the uh, Brooklyn Electronics Music Festival. So now going back to it growing each year, Did you have a moment when you realized, like, this thing is kind of big? (laughs) We ended up buying out our partners in the festival. So it was just Jen and I. And we moved it to Williamsburg and we decided to do a multi-venue thing. So first it was two venues that were right next to each other. Um, It was called Public Assembly. And then Williamsburg Music Hall, they literally shared a wall. So we did concerts in both. So you could bounce back and forth into both. Then we were like, what happens if we also get the club down the street? And then we added Cameo. We took everything over. 
Nicholas Jar played one year and he was playing in Williamsburg Music Hall. We had like four or five venues running at the time. And I remember someone saying, Katie, look. And I turned around. There's a crowd of people like triangulating into the venue. Like literally it's got to be like 300 people, like all swarming the door of the venue, trying to get into the Nicholas Jar show at Banff when there were like, you know, six other shows going on at the same time. And I remember turning around and like literally saying to myself, oh my God, this thing is so much bigger than us. There was no way that group of people were just there because like Jen and Katie threw a rave. It was like we had created a brand, we had booked relevant talent and we had marketed it in a way where far outside of ourselves, people had bought tickets and shown up. And I turned around and I saw that and I was like, oh my God, this shit is real. (laughs) We built a thing. Were there, were there ever points where you're like, I don't know if this is going to work? Yeah. I mean, you know, festivals don't make money. We like took a loss for a really long time before it was like value, like, you know, we getting, hitting zero at a music, as a music festival is success. Right. So like that was a learning for me when we closed the yard because we had to, right. That was a loss for me. I couldn't drive by it for two years because we had built this epic. It was the first thing I had ever built that was that successful. What year was that when you closed that? 2010 or 2011. But like, you know, it was always going to close and we knew that. Can we talk about that closing? I mean, you said it like always was going to close, but like what was the the moments leading up to it actually closing? There wasn't so much to do. You know, it wasn't our space. So we were always at the mercy of our landlord. So what happened was the beginning of it was sort of creative differences, which is like different people wanted it to express in different ways, scale in different ways or not scale in different ways, which led to looking at the timeline of what it was going to be. And it had a finite timeline. It was always going to be developed property. And ultimately, when nobody could come to an agreement about what that was supposed to look like, we decided to stop. When you see something that can make a lot of money and you're a person who makes a lot of money for a living, it's really hard to get out of that mindset. Now, as an older, more seasoned person, I understand that. Then I was just like, why don't you understand what we're trying to build? You know, like I was so heartbroken over the the loss of this beautiful, special, precious thing. But I mean, I, I assume that's something you could apply to anything that any founder builds, right? Like they build a thing they believe in and then it's time to scale. And that's when things get really fucking complicated. I feel like the the phrase that I'm coming back to is like, you wanted to build a place that could like hold people, giving a place where people felt welcome. Yeah. And like, that's placemaking, you know, and that's what I've always done. Can you imagine having that taken away from you and at some level, not within your control to rectify it? Like I had to accept that it was something that I couldn't keep and that sucked. And so like in the wake of that, like, what are you thinking about doing next? And like, how are you going to, how do you move forward? I got really driven. It was almost like, did you tell me no? Watch me now. That was when BEMF scaled. Like, I was just like, you're going to take this thing away from me? Fuck you. I'm going to go make this thing over here and I'm going to make it the biggest, most epic, most like pour every piece of my creativity and community and resources into it. And and with my partner and she had a she had a complimentary set, set of skills to me. So we were really great partners in that way. And and we scaled that festival really fast. You know, it lasted 11 years. This is Brooklyn Electronics Music Festival that you're talking about, right? In terms of scaling. Mm-hmm. And in its final year, you know, 10,000 people were going. Katie is the outlier. Unlike most, she's not power hungry or in it for the money. I think she really cares about building community. She's known it since her childhood. 
She never wanted first chair in cello, and she even still likes to work the door at parties. Katie is a catalyst. She doesn't need glory or spotlight. She likes to know that she is the reason others get that moment to shine. Whether it's complimenting the first chair's melody, being the introduction to a new world at the door, or organizing events to bring an influx of culture, she's good at being that missing piece. Katie's support highlights the passion of others. But the thing is, when you do this really well, when you're the side of the stage so often, inevitably, one of these days, you'll be asked to step into the spotlight. I want to talk about a time in 2014 because you get a profile in the New York Times that leads to pretty interesting introduction. How did you get that press and uh, what did it lead to? The woman who wrote the article in the New York Times grew up like 10 minutes away from me. I never knew her. So she had caught wind of me and some of the things I had been doing because she wrote for various publications. So she followed me and shadowed me for a couple days and wrote an article. And it was everything from being in the studio that I share with Nick Hook um, and Aesop Ferg was there. I threw a rave in a dim sum restaurant and she went to that. I, it was quite entertaining. I think at one point she took a picture of me holding, like, I don't even know how much money it was. I'm not going to say like a lot of money in cash. And the photographer who was following us took a picture and I was like, you can't use that. <laughs> like, it was just like a picture of me in the back of a black car holding like, a you know, a stack of cash. <laughs> and I was just like, I look like a drug dealer. Like, and I'm not like, this is not, no, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was kind of one of my first exposures to that kind of thing. That article hit the New York Times style section. I got a huge section of the paper. Like I got like half a page or something and um, it changed my life. And I think there was like a digital link that came out on a Thursday. And I'm actually right now I'm on top of Powder Mountain in Utah. And I was up here at that time. And, you know, there's like one grocery store here. And um, I was here with Dream Hampton, Jose Mejia, all these people, I was like surrounded by my community of people. We were literally here on a vacation. And one of the guys on top of the mountain drove all the way down to the bottom of the mountain to go to the grocery store to get the New York Times and drive it all the way back up and put it on all of the tables so that when I walked in, it was there. That's amazing. And there's a picture of me the day it came out standing with the mountains behind me holding the New York Times. It was super cool. It was such a crazy moment. Like I'm literally... 9,000 feet above sea level on top of the world, holding like the most significant piece of press that I've ever had. And, you know, to me, it was like, you know, finally I can explain to my parents, I have a real job. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? You know, cause they, you know, you quit a real job and you have Southern parents and they're like, what do you mean? You don't have a business card. What do you mean? You're hanging out in nightclubs and paying your rent. Like, I don't believe you. You know, it just, it kind of legitimized what I knew to be true, which was that there was value in what I was doing. Yeah. And it didn't just legitimize it to like you or your parents. Like, I feel like everyone who read that article saw that legitimacy. For sure. I definitely had all kinds of people reach out to me, people that I knew and people that I didn't know, people whose parents called them being like, did you see Katie in the New York Times? Like, it was like, you know, it's a moment I'll never forget. And I'll always value it very deeply. How could she forget it? For the first time, she wasn't the conductor behind the orchestra of creators. She was the one taking a solo, and it was in front of a 5 million member audience. It's funny, though. Even though she's center stage, the collaborator in her can't help but highlight the role her community played. Where so many of us think we'll find our success by outshining our peers, Katie knew the power of the collective, 
and the collective is what made her stand out. As contradictory as this sounds, it makes perfect sense when you look at studies on performance. For instance, research has shown that when students are taught through a cooperative method, meaning they work with one another to learn their coursework, their testing scores average about 50% higher than students that learn through individualistic, competitive methods. When we highlight the people around us and work together, we bring out the best in ourselves. Katie had definitely brought out her best, and because of this, her spotlight was far from over. And so can you tell me how you got on someone's radar with that? Steve Stout, he uh, ran an agency called Translation, or he still does, and he was looking for new talent at that time. And the story I was told, because I was not there, he walked in with the paper, like being like, where is this person? This is the kind of person I'm saying I want. Like, go find me this person. And I was like in, I was ironically, a mutual friend had introduced me to someone at the company and I was literally in the building already. Oh my God. And I promptly ended up in Steve Stout's office. I didn't know a lot about Steve's personality. I knew who he was because he's like a cultural icon. You know, for context for everyone here, he discovered Nas. He helped create the color Jay-Z Blue. He put the I'm Loving It song with Justin Timberlake was created out of translation. I mean, like, if you're a cult follower of culture, you know who he is. So I knew who he was. I did not know a whole lot about his personality. And he has a big personality and so do I. And at the time I was like living my best life and I was working for myself and I thought all corporate people were stupid and you know, whatever, I had whatever narrative in my head. And he was like, I'm Steve Stout and you're like me. You can make something out of nothing. You make culture, like that's what I did. You need to work for me. And I was like, well, I'm Katie Longmire and I work for anybody. And I still am like, I cannot believe I said that to him. What was his response to that? Like, I think he was amused that I had the balls to speak to him like that. Because, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't been in office in so long. And I definitely had never worked in advertising. I didn't understand the opportunity. I didn't understand what was happening, honestly. And all I knew was what my value was in my community. And I felt okay with that. But to his credit, like, like a good mentor does, he kind of, like, checked me a little bit and was like, that's cute. You're doing small time shit and you need to work for me and I'm going to give you, like, a couple million dollars to do stuff. So, like, that stuff you're doing over there in the club, why don't we do it over here in, like, a stadium? Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. What was one of the, the, the crazy projects that you ended up being able to put across the finish line? That is a limitless list. We did, I think the crazy, I mean, I don't even know. I'm trying to like pick one. I think one of the craziest ones is when we produced Made in America, we produced it in two coasts simultaneously at the same time. And there was a point where I hadn't slept in like, I don't even know, like a week. And I like literally was in Philly on the ground one afternoon and in LA on the ground the next afternoon with 80,000 people and Kanye performing. And I literally flew to Portland after that booked a room at the Ace Hotel and I slept for three days. Executive producing a festival of that level, you know, Anheuser-Busch was the client. Every single crazy talent was performing. Um, Translation had executed all of the creative, all of the social, all of the messaging and, you know, worked with the production on the actual event. So like, you know, and I was sitting at the helm of the intersection of those relationships. And that was my first job, first date. 
how does this feel different than what you did before? You know, one of the things I like is that it's just scaled. One of the pieces of advice that I give to everybody is a big idea and a small idea takes the exact same amount of things. Like the building blocks and the foundation of them are the same. The execution part is the part where you bring in the volume of humans and resources, you know, like a bigger idea needs more money, needs more people to execute it, et cetera. But the foundations of what an idea is and the framework of that idea will always look the same. So like it's actually way less intimidating than you think. So if you approach an idea with building blocks and framework first, like a lot of the things that you've seen scale in my career is me applying a formula, for lack of a better description, of what I know works over and over and over again, there just were more and more people in the room and more and more resources apply. And yeah, it takes more and more effort, but yeah. So what do you think that formula is? I think it's a combination of uh, relentless pursuit of excellence at all times, deep, deep belief in culture and humanity, creativity with no limitation, and infrastructure, like the container. And the container is where you get your operational humans and maybe some money or lots of money if even better. I think I cried. I remember standing on stage when Kanye performed and there's a photo of it, I think on my Instagram, I have to find, but like someone took a photo of me from the behind and I'm facing out looking at the crowd. I'm not looking at Kanye's like standing right here on the left. And I cried because I was just so overwhelmed by the fact that a, a boardroom full of people had manifested that moment together. And, you know, if there's anything I learned from Steve, it's that is the possibility of, of scale and limitlessness if you just choose to believe that you can do it with the right people in the right way. So what did you try to do? And like, I guess, how does that lead up to what you're looking towards the future doing right now? For the first time in my whole life, I took time off. I came back to this mountain. I've been here for a year now. Um, so I spent a lot of time outside. I spent a lot of time reflecting I spent a lot of time just not deciding what I wanted. And then I started calling people. I uh, started a super PAC with the CMO of Converse and a bunch of other people. And we created the first digital TikTok house and we helped get Biden elected. And I worked on side projects um, with people I deeply respect in non-traditional leadership and how you give opportunities to people of color who maybe never identified themselves as leaders. What advice would you give to that person who's maybe starting on their music career or their events career, starting in this space um, and, and doesn't maybe have direction, but has drive. So what advice would you give that person? I think uh, to listen to yourself, like you don't need the direction. Like I never had a trajectory, like, and the opportunities that arose were because I listened to myself and I believed in what I heard in my own heart and mind when I was making choices. So like, trust your gut, trust your choices, be weird, celebrate your weirdness. You know, if one of these things is not like the other, that is a good thing. Hold on to that and cherish that and believe in that at all costs. And you'll walk down your path. And then, and then the other thing is like every single person who comes into your life is valuable. I always joke around that I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep you when I meet people. I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep you. You're on the Katie train now. Like, let's go. We're all going together. Community really is at the root of my success. And I would not be where I am. I would not have had the opportunities I did if someone hadn't introduced me to someone, if someone hadn't 
believed in me, if someone hadn't been standing next to me. Like I am one person that has an army of humans standing next to you and behind me at all times. I operate that way at all times. Even when I'm sitting in an executive position um, at a company, I see myself as a representation of the community that birthed me and they are with me at every minute in every decision. I think that's a lesson everyone's gotten in COVID is like look up to your left and to your right and about who you care about and why you care about them and take extra care of them. And like that will take you farther. While it took an extreme form of isolation for many of us to learn this lesson, Katie's eyes have always recognized the value in the people around her. Her story came to us at such a timely point in the year. Her success shows us the excellence we can achieve if we lift each other up and prioritize connection. Moving forward from this period of social distancing, we all get the chance to take on Katie's role as doorkeeper. We get to decide how we want to rebuild our container, the space we begin to repopulate. Will we still idolize competitive independence or will the American dream begin to take a different shape? So many of us have been dreaming of a place to unite, a place where the valuable thinkers who have been excluded for so long can get to join the party. Katie was way ahead of the game on this, and now it's our time to finally catch up. This is our chance to leave pride and status in the cold. We can hit the barriers that divide us with a sorry, sweetie, not this millennia. Now's the time to achieve excellence and stop ourselves from overlooking the power of good peoples. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, Firna Seminario, and Linda Tapia. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.